is a very strong and complicated emotion. Everybody feels guilt at some point in their lives for something they have done wrong, so it's universal. But the question we ought to ask is, what is guilt for and what do you do with it? Well, guilt is what God has, in a sense, pre-installed in every human being as some kind of hazard warning system. The Bible talks about it like it's the dashboard light of the soul. And what it's for is this. God uses guilt or the conscience to awaken a sense of neediness in us so that we go to him and find our happiness in him. Neediness in us to help us find happiness in him. But here is the colossal problem. Some people hardly know that that's what guilt is for, and they bear it through their lives, and it crushes them. And other people hardly really know what to do with sin and do with guilt. What about you? What's your experience of guilt? Maybe you're like a friend of mine called James. Uh, James has a very sensitive conscience. It doesn't take much for him to feel down when he does something wrong, but he doesn't really handle his guilt the right way. He either acts like Dobby from Harry Potter, punishing himself in ways where he feels almost paid for his own wrongdoings, or he goes to the other extreme of acting like a philanthropist, trying to do good, uh, ba- do good to balance out the bad. I wonder if you identify with any of those I wonder if you have, then have you come to realize yet that either approach, relief is brief. It doesn't last. That's not the way to deal with guilt. Or maybe you're more like Mandy. Uh, She learned to deal with guilt in a very different way. She had a very seared conscience. She didn't feel what she ought to have felt in relation to her sin. In a sense, she had numbed herself, desensitized herself to the things that she was doing in life. I mean, I'll never forget how coldly and unfeelingly she admitted her adultery to her husband sitting opposite her and immediately after admitting it went on to say, and I'd probably do it again. It was cold. Do you deal with guilt like that where you kind of suppress it and become unfeeling in relation to it? I want to say this morning that that is not the way to deal with guilt. So what should we do with it? Well, I think I want to show you today through the catastrophic errors of the people that we meet in Matthew chapter 27, 1 to 10, that the only way to deal with guilt is to take it to Jesus. The only way to deal with guilt is to take it to Jesus. Let's start with Judas Iscariot. In verses 3 to 5, he is a guilt-ridden sinner who sees no possibility for forgiveness. So verses 1 and 2 give us a little bit of context. As the innocent Christ is led away to Pontius Pilate, Matthew wants to hold on. We don't go to Pilate yet. We're stuck with Judas. He wants us to see that Judas is gripped with guilt. Look at me, verse 3. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. 
Now, the sight of the condemnation and mistreatment of the most innocent, the most loving, the most gracious, the most gentle person who has ever lived is unbearable for Judas. He probably thought in the plans that were being hatched that he'd be able to cope with it. But he's like Lady Macbeth. He's got blood in his hands, profit in his pocket from the part that he played in the imminent, imminent and unjust and cruel crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He's gripped with guilt. How does he deal with it? Well, at first it looks like he's dealing with it pretty well. He feels remorse. He returns the money. He admits his guilt. Verse 4, he even says, I have sinned. He's actually very specific about his admission. I have betrayed innocent blood. Wow, that's very clear. But take a closer look at what Judas does and listen very closely to what Matthew says. And you start to realize that he's not doing this because he is feeling guilty about offending the holiness of God. Rather, everything he's doing here is done to make himself feel better. For example, even Matthew's use of the word remorse, it's not the same word for repentance. Although it's a word that sounds like he's sorry, it's not. I mean, what is repentance? It's turning from sin and turning to God in forgiveness. But what do we see in Judas? He's not turning to God in the slightest. He's trying to unguilt himself without God. Proving to us that he still does not grasp that sin is an offense against the majesty and the holiness of God, our creator and Lord. Now, Matthew goes on to show us two things that prove that beyond a doubt. It's not just speculative. The first thing we see is that Judas then handles his guilt the wrong way. I mean, he went to the wrong person for a start. Verse 3 says that when he feels this guilt, he, he goes to the chief priests and elders. Why not go to Jesus for forgiveness? I found myself asking. Why not just get on his knees and cry out to God in repentance? Well, the answer is because Judas was more concerned about buying back his own innocence than standing up for Christ's. He's not trying to free Jesus. You don't hear him go to the chief priests and the elders and say, we have got this completely wrong. We need to find a way to set this guy free. Stop the march to Pilate. Put the brakes on this. This is, this is wrong. Doesn't do that. No, he's just trying to get himself off the hook. Trying to free himself, but it doesn't work. Trying to self-justify, it doesn't work. Brothers and sisters, friends, it just never works. That's not the way to deal with guilt. And when these so-called pastors of the day fobbed them off, Judas then, verse 5, throws the money into the temple. Now, guilt plagues you in a way that sometimes makes the thing that you really wanted the thing you end up hating. You ever find that with sin? And so to relieve the guilt, you try to undo it, like Judas does. I mean, the one who held the ministry money bag the one who happily slipped coins past the bag and into his pocket, dreaming daily about what he would do with this embezzled treasure, cannot now stand the sight 
or the feel of money. He loved it. And now that he's got some, he hates it. Do you ever find that with sin? Does guilt work that way with us? Well, the religious leaders just wouldn't take it back. So he threw it back. The word that Matthew uses for temple here makes it really quite clear to us. This is not just Judas standing on the the steps of the temple and lobbing the 30 pieces of silver. He's gone through the court of the Gentiles. He's gone through the court of the women. He has gone right to the very door of the the holy place where you had the altar of the presence, the bread of the presence, etc., in a room that was no bigger than this middle section of chairs here. And he launches those 30 pieces of silver. They would have clanged around the floor, bounced off stuff, landed in the altar, who knows, maybe even thudding off that huge, thick curtain that guarded the most holy, holy place and the atonement seat of Christ, of, of the altar. He threw it back. Most likely in spite. He threw it in there to force them to handle the money and face up to the same guilt that he felt. But nothing worked. Of course it doesn't. Nothing except turning to Christ relieves us of our guilt. And in no time at all, Judas' unresolved guilt led him into the very depths of despair. And how deep it got. Verse 5. Judas went away and hanged himself. He felt his guilt so deeply that he punished himself most severely. He probably thought it would bring him relief. But as an unbeliever, he would have found that it didn't. While suicide is certainly a sin for Christians, a violation of the sixth commandment, and a wrong course of action for those who feel such despair. The Bible does not say that it's the unforgivable sin that would bar a believer from heaven. Let me make that clear. But death, suicide, whether you're a believer or not, brings no relief to misery. It only transfers it to others Or, if you don't believe in Jesus, hear me, it makes that misery permanent. That's why, if you're struggling with guilt or shame, and blackness, darkness, and despair, whether through sin, or suffering, or through mental health, that makes or brings on thoughts of ending your life, I want to appeal to you very, very clearly this morning and ask you to not do that. Talk to us. Tell someone. Let others speak into your life words of hope. 
if you feel so in the pit that you feel like you don't want to talk to anyone here, then I've put a notice in the bulletin this week for Samaritans. There are people on the phone ready to help. But God has given us this gracious provision of his assurance, his presence, his forgiveness, hope. And he has deliberately put us in a family together that we might serve one another, even when we feel darkness to this level. It's okay to talk about it. Please come and talk about it. For sinners, there is forgiveness, no matter what you've done. No one has outsinned the glorious grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. For sufferers, there's strength. His grace is more than enough for us in times of need. And our Father in heaven has a special place in his heart for the vulnerable and the broken. There's always hope in Christ. So don't do what Judas did. He acted too quickly, too rashly. So quickly, I think, he ruled out any possibility of the one thing that would actually have given him hope. Time. Time to turn to Jesus. Isn't that exactly what the apostle Peter found? I mean, we just left him last time weeping bitterly at his betrayal of Jesus. He too is gripped with guilt, much in the same way that Judas is, though Judas' sin certainly is strong. But Peter, deep down, knew Jesus to be merciful. He had seen Jesus' love for serious sinners in the everyday life of ministry with him. He had heard Jesus preach on forgiveness all the time and the forgiving of great debts. And he found relief in going to Jesus and finding forgiveness and restoration. And in the end, instead of taking his own life, he lived his life for Jesus' sake and brought many, many more people into life. What about you? Are you the kind of person who feels the weight of guilt and tries to deal with it in some other way apart from taking it to Jesus? We have to realize that there are various wrong ways to deal with guilt. Whether you're turning to, you know, we can turn to anything but Jesus for relief, whether it's to alcohol or drugs or relationships or overeating or even good works or anything else, I can assure you that guilt will remain. The only way to deal with guilt is to take it to Christ. It's the only way. So that's why the Bible calls us regularly to just see sin for what it is. Not just remorse, but repentance. It's an offense against the holy, our holy God. And then confess that sin out of a repentant heart. If we confess our sins, he tells us, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from, does he say some unrighteousness? Or does he say, all 
unrighteousness. He says all. Therefore, the question is, are we going to take him at his word? Are we going to take him at his word when he says in Hebrews, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. And then will we live in the light of that freedom and forgiveness? Do you see then how God uses guilt to awaken a sense of neediness in us so that we go to him to find our happiness in him? Not just in the forgiveness he offers, but in him as loving and as gracious and as merciful as he is. So to guilt-ridden sinners who see no hope for forgiveness, God's word says, take it to Jesus. It's the only way to deal with guilt. But what about the, what about the Mandy's? What about the, the guilt-stifling sinner who just sees no need for forgiveness? Maybe that applies to you. What does God's word have to say to people like that? Well, that's what we see in the activity of the chief priests and elders in verses 6 to 10. Religious leaders Guilt-stifling sinners who see no need for forgiveness. Again, as the innocent Christ is led away to Pontius Pilate and Judas goes through the enactment of throwing the 30 pieces of silver in, Matthew shows that they've got something to deal with that, with that money and he, well, something to deal with in their guilt. He's very keen to show us how they sidestep it. If you look with me at verse 4, Judas says, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. And they say, what is that to us? That's your responsibility. Not exactly candidates for a ministry apprenticeship, these guys. But how cold and unfeeling can you get? I mean, to be so indifferent to someone else's anxiety and pain. It's horrible. But Matthew, I think, wants us to see that this is more than just indifference and an uncaring heart. It's blame shifting. And this is one of the ways that people try to deal with guilt or stifle it. Transfer blame to someone else. Have you ever tried to use that tactic when someone points out sin in your life? Oh, we try to avoid it, don't we? Because it's not comfortable. Or we downplay it. We minimize it. Brothers, sisters, friends, we need to understand that if we do those things and don't just humbly bring our sin out into the light and confess it, we can find the conscience hardening and our actions too. But what Matthew does here is he shows us that these guilt stiflers, they actually know what they've done wrong. And they admit their guilt. Verse 6, the chief priest picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. That is culpability acknowledged right there. Enough to try them in a court of law. This money has been used illegally to get someone else killed. This is if we can't use it because that's what it's been used for. So what do they do with this though? So there's that little admission of guilt. What do they do with it? Ah, well, they just deal with the wrong problem, don't they? 
They ask, hmm, what are we legally allowed to do with these 30 pieces of silver? See what's wrong with that? They should be asking, what are we going to do about our wrongdoing? We've condemned an innocent man to die worse than that. The man we've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years. The perfectly pure son of God. But you don't ask that question if you're self-righteous. And you don't think that you sin. You don't ask that question if you just think everybody else is really quite guilty and you're just fine. You don't ask that question if you've learned to shush your conscience and deal with guilt in that way. Like Judas, the religious leaders handle their guilt the wrong way. They just overlook it. Verses 7 and 8, this money can't come out of the treasury, strangely. Can't come into the treasury, strangely, even though it came out of it. How weird is that? So they can use the money to pay someone off. To bribe someone into giving someone up. So it's still blood money in that sense. You know, they're happy to take it out of the treasury to do that. But uh, shall we put it in the offering? Oh, no. What false piety. How corrupt. How blind. So they try to cover it up with something good. Verse 7, they decide to use the money to buy this potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. How nice and charitable of them. I mean, they might as well have said, we've bought death with it before. Oh, I know. Let's buy a field and turn it into a cemetery. That would be in keeping with the budget. But listen, they overlooked their sin and their guilt and tried to mask it with something pious. But God knew that they would. That's why the prophecy mentioned by Matthew that links back to Jeremiah 19 and Zechariah 11 is mentioned. Two passages in which God calls on the prophets of those days to speak out against Israel's cold, dead, unfeeling hearts. They were in those times sacrificing their children to false gods in a field of clay in the very same location as this field of blood. And God says to them through Jeremiah and Zechariah, you're not my people. My people don't do that. But by carrying out this purchase, they actually commit the same sin as their forefathers. Except this time they're sacrificing not their own sons, but God's. His one and only son, sent in love for their redemption. But they rejected it. And God says that through their unwitting acquisition, you're not my people, my people don't do that. They hear his voice. They open their lives. They admit their guilt. They welcome him in. Seriously, if they had known their Bible well enough, they would have looked for some kind of real estate or property or field on another side of town. 
but God worked to uphold the innocence of his son and so showcase for all time, even to people like us, hundreds and hundreds of years later, the guilt of his own people in rejecting their savior and sending his son to his death. Do we do the same? Do we find ourselves quite happily, insensitively overlooking our sin? Do you find yourself blame shifting? Whether in your marriage, with the kids, with friends. Oh, it's not me that's dead, it's your fault. I wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for you, so we shift the blame. Or we downplay it. Oh, it's not that big a deal, come on. It's one of these small sins. It's a little white lie. What is a white lie? A lie. But what does the gospel say to people like this who overlook their sin? It says, you're a sinner. It says, you need to see it. No matter what you do to downplay it, the Bible makes it clear there is no one righteous, not even one. And indeed, we're invited just to own our own guilt and then admit it freely. Bring it into the light of God's welcoming grace, realizing that there is freedom for those who find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's the way that you deal with guilt. Is that the way that you deal with yours? Whether you're a James or a Mandy, crushed by guilt, not seeing any hope for forgiveness, or indifferent to guilt, not seeing any need for forgiveness, know this, the only way to deal with guilt is to take it to Jesus. Have you done that? I'm pretty sure that some folks out there are still sitting thinking, you just don't know my sin. You don't know mine. There are some things that I have done before I was a Christian that weigh heavily on me at times and could easily crush my spirit. It's easy to fall into the self-flagellating despair that we can experience by just not forgiving, not understanding the forgiveness that God has pronounced over us through his son. Do you feel that at times? This is why Christians walk around being, trying to be like the happiest people that you can meet because we've, we know our sin. We know we're not perfect. My goodness, we're definitely not. We're just the kind of people who have come to understand the Bible, recognize our sin, and just freely admit it. Yet not I, <laughs> but through Christ and me. That's where joy lies. That's why we have happiness in him. So are you like James, 
constantly crushed by guilt, not seeing any hope for forgiveness, the only way to deal with that guilt is to take it to Jesus. If you're like Mandy, indifferent to guilt, not seeing any need for forgiveness, alarm bells ought to be going off in your mind. The only way to deal with that guilt is to rightly take it to Jesus. Because in him, in him, brothers and sisters, friends, there is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Full and free held out to you as a free gift of grace. You don't need to do a thing to, to win the salvation. It's a gift. How gracious and how kind is he. The only way to deal with guilt is to take it to Jesus. Let's bow our heads. I'd like to lead us in a prayer using Psalm 51, a prayer of confession. Have mercy on us, O gods, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out our transgressions, wash away all our iniquities, and cleanse us from our sins. For we know our transgressions, and our sin is always before us. Against you, you only have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely we were sinful at birth, sinful from the time our mothers conceived us, Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught us wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse us with hyssop and we shall be clean. Wash us and we shall be whiter than snow. Let us hear joy and gladness. Let the, broken, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from our sins and blot out our iniquities. Create in us pure hearts, O God, and renew steadfast spirits within us. Do not cast us from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and grant us willing spirits to sustain us. Then we will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver us from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are our God and our Savior, and our tongues will sing of your righteousness. Open our lips, Lord, and our mouths will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or we would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Our sacrifice, O oh God, are our broken spirits, broken and contrite hearts, O oh God, you will not despise. We praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.